0: I understand that Nevadans have concerns and even fears about the coronavirus. But as UMC stated just the other day, the antidote to fear is knowledge and preparedness. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to prepare, not panic.
1: For weeks, the number of confirmed cases of the novel coronavirus have ticked up across the United States.
0: That includes confirmed cases in a ring of states around Nevada, including Oregon, California, Arizona, and Utah.
1: On Thursday morning, Nevada joined that list, confirming the first so-called presumptive positive test case, a Las Vegas man in his 50s. By Thursday night, there was a second case, this time in Reno.
0: And on Sunday afternoon, local health officials confirmed another two cases, one in Washoe and another in Clark County.
1: I'm the Nevada Independence, Joey Lovato with reporter and producer Jacob Solis, here to break down what we know about the coronavirus and how it's impacting Nevada, and what we're still trying to figure
0: out. We'll start with you, Joey, and listen to an interview you had last week with Dr. Mark Pandori, the director of the Nevada State Public Health Laboratory up in Reno.
1: So I'm here with with Dr. Mark Pandori, and you're with the uh, Nevada State Public Health Laboratory. Nevada State
2: Public Health Laboratory, the University of Nevada School of Medicine here in Reno.
1: All right. And can you kind of just tell me what you guys do, what that is?
2: The Nevada State Public Health Laboratory serves the entire state of Nevada. We do infectious disease testing both for medical and for surveillance purposes, that is to help people with regard to illness, but also just to surveil for infectious disease. We also test water and do newborn screening for the entire state. We're also what is known as a Tier 1 Select Agents Lab, which means that we test for agents of bioterrorism and exist in a 24-7 state of readiness to uh, protect Nevada citizens from those agents as well.
1: Okay. And so right now we've got the coronavirus, the COVID-19 outbreak going on. That's right. That originated in China and it's moved to the United States. We've had a couple deaths and several uh, confirmed cases throughout the United States. We had uh, a...
2: Oh, presumptive. I think is the word you're looking for. (laughs) Yeah, that word has caused some confusion. Okay, can you explain to me what that means? Sure. When laboratories other than the CDC laboratory in Atlanta generate a positive test result, we define it as a presumptive positive test result. It's interesting because we can react to that from a medical public health perspective. It can be acted upon, but it doesn't convert to a defined confirmed case until the CDC has received the positive specimen from us and has tested it themselves.
1: Okay. So we've had the the first one of those that happened here here in Nevada this morning. Southern Nevada. Southern Nevada in Las Vegas. How have you guys been handling this? Because you're a statewide organization. Right. We're a statewide. This lab, this is the
2: state lab for Nevada. And we handle specimens from it that originate anywhere in the state. There is a lab in Clark County that handles for coronavirus testing specimens that originate in Clark County. But how it's being handled here at the state of Nevada Public Health Laboratory is that we perform the COVID-19 PCR test. Uh, We perform it for any clinician that has a patient who is symptomatic and then meets the criteria for testing. And right now, public health departments are helping clinicians decide whether a patient meets criteria. Initially, those criteria were rather narrow. A person had to have a certain link or to another case or to travel to an affected area. But in recent days, if, if not just yesterday, in fact, the criteria expanded. So now a clinician might have a symptomatic individual and decide that they might want coronavirus testing and it, that patient would not necessarily need to have an epidemiologic link to another case it would just have to be ascertained that they don't have something more common like which is circulating right now like flu or cold
1: are you guys ramping up for for the covid 19 testing are you guys preparing yeah. for to be testing more
2: yes we are ramping up is to use the term you indicated. We started out back on February 11th with the ability to perform about 300 tests. And that was from a kit that was provided to us by the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC. We've ramped up, and in fact, today, now have uh, 1,800 Uh, reactions with which to test um, for coronavirus. So we've really considerably ramped up. But it's not just chemicals and reagents, it's also the training. We've gone from one person to now three people on our staff that can perform the test and are also establishing, Nevada's a big state with rural areas and we're in the process now of establishing and refining our courier network capability so that we can get specimens from anywhere in the state Uh, to this lab for testing. So you have a network of of drivers that are going to get contracts, yeah, with people that can get specimens to us in order to test. Because one of the things we've seen already in California, it's not necessarily the most populated counties or areas that are going to see the initial cases.
1: And you said you had 118 tests that you could run? Question. We oh, have I'm sorry. One, I thought one test th- to run. 1,018. One, one
2: uh, oh, yeah. 1,800. Yeah. 1,800 yeah, potential. We have enough, yeah. We can do about 100 tests per day. Okay. Um, the test takes between three and four hours for us to do. So we could do multiple runs in a day on multiple platforms. And we have the uh, capacity to test about. one. I say about because it depends whether we batch test or run people individually. But. We can test approximately uh, 1,000 people, I said up to maybe about 1,800 people right now.
1: And we've kind of heard some conflicting stuff. We heard that there were 500 test kits, and some people were saying that each test kit could be reused or could be used multiple times. How, how do the test kits work, and how many do we have now?
2: It's a good question. And. Um, I'm not sure the intre- how interesting the answer is to your audience because it gets to be a little um, down in the weeds here. So, the test kits that were sent out by the CDC contained what we call 1,000 reactions. What's a reaction? Well, uh, that's essentially, you could think of a reaction as a lab test, but when diagnostic laboratories perform this laboratory test, we don't just run the specimen, we have to run what are called controls for every run. A control are essentially fake specimens that are positive and negative that Um, determine whether or not the test is functioning properly so that when we generate a result for a specimen, those controls, the positive controls have to be positive and the negative controls have to be negative so that we know the test functioned properly. So that requires reactions as well. So if you think about it, if we were just to test one patient in one run, we would have a positive and negative control in a patient. That would be three reactions. So what you're hearing about 500 tests or 300 or people don't really know what to say because in one run we can do up to about 21 or 22 patients and then two controls but if we had one patient and two controls you can see there's an economy to the test okay okay so you so one kit could test maybe 300 people let's say
1: if if we tested them singly and and that's kind of the capacity we have right now at the state is about 300 people right now the
2: capacity we have is a, is a, at least a thousand as much as up to oh, 1800. okay
1: uh, that's the number of people that can be tested not the number of tests that that's the be total number of tests that we have uh and
2: we think let me put it you're probably feeling bad you asked the question <laughs> we have enough reagents to test well over a thousand people here.
1: okay so we've got we could probably test about a thousand people at least what when you test it is it are you just getting like a spit sample or what are, how are you, what are you doing how are you
2: That's a good question because a lot of people that I've communicated with that have questions about testing think of it as a blood test and why not because that's a very common way to get a medical test but in fact this test doesn't test your blood for coronavirus 2019 what we're testing are np swabs which are nasopharyngeal swabs that go into your nose and touch the back of your throat and also throat swabs or op swabs as we may call them oropharyngeal swabs and so the reason we're testing those swabs is that's where we find the virus when a person is ill and in fact transmission of the virus comes when those fluids that you know are in the respiratory tract are coming out through the nose or the mouth and so you can imagine there's there's virus in those droplets and so we're testing the swabs that touch those areas actually directly for the virus itself.
1: Okay. And so if someone in say Elko gets sick, you can swab them there and then have a courier bring it to the university here in Reno, and you can test it. And That's correct. Have a result with, within a couple hours.
2: Well, when it hits the lab lobby here, it would get checked in, and I would say three to four hours later, you'd have it. We would have a test result.
1: Okay. Once you, when you take the the sample, are you just putting it into certain chemicals that indicate whether there's a virus or not?
2: The sample. Uh, which the swab if the swab um, touched virus let's mm-hmm. say in the yeah. back of the throat or in the nose it goes into a tube that has some liquid in it and so if there is virus on that swab it, it comes off the swab and into the liquid in the collect what we call a collection kit so what we do is take that liquid from that was touching the swab and then we ask if there's virus in that liquid. And the way we do it is we look for the what's called genome of the virus. So just like human beings or your cat or your dog or your pet lizard, there would be a genome of DNA or RNA in this case, which is very similar to DNA. And we look for the RNA genome of this coronavirus. Genomes are a great way to look for infectious agents because they're, very, they're different and very specific to each organism.
1: And so yeah, so then it's just it's gonna tell the test will tell you if this is the coronavirus or not at that point. Correct. Okay. Um, do, do these test kits have an expiration date, or are they just you can hold on to them for?
2: Right now, it looks like we have no expiration date, but that's because we're keeping these reagents at a temperature like minus 70 degrees Celsius, so they're extremely stable at that temperature. I think as the test matures, it's currently offered under what's called an emergency use authorization, so it's been offered even though we don't have all the characteristics of the test worked out at the FDA. So right now there's certain aspects of the test that we don't fully understand, but based on other very similar tests to this, we know that they're stable for a very long time at that temperature.
1: And you're getting these tests from the CDC?
2: We initially, yes, we got the test from the CDC. There's now private organizations that work directly with the CDC to offer reagents, and we've actually initiated obtaining reagents from those sources as well because we want to make sure that the state of Nevada does not run out of test kits. So we're making every effort not to rely necessarily just on the CDC for that.
1: You, are, are you guys in, the, in, in the, the lab in southern Nevada the only ones that have these kits? In the
2: state of Nevada, as you and I are speaking to one another, the answer would be yes. I'm specific about that because this is a moving, evolving situation, and the FDA is now saying that any lab can develop a test or run a, a certain lab tests. So I think what we will see in the coming months is more labs in Nevada able to run the test, private labs and hospital labs, but for now it's just public health laboratories here the state public health lab on the School of Medicine campus in Reno and also the Southern District Health Lab that run it in Nevada. That's correct, just those two.
1: Okay. And Oh, and, and for the record, it's March 5th at, at 3.40, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just so if people are listening to this later and other labs have test kits at that point. <laughs> yeah. how, how does this compare to other other outbreaks like we've seen with swine flu or with Ebola? Do, do you see this as worse or or, or not as bad? or how, where, where are we here?
2: Well, that's a, a very good question it's it, it, it force it, to answer it would force me to a speculate and B, use adjectives <laughs> and uh, um, I remember in 2009 when we had the swine flu and I would say it mirrors that fairly closely in many respects there was an origination in another country and initially we were seeing alarming death rates it's my memory that that spread more quick more quickly mm-hmm. um, back in 2009 than this did I mean, We've had since November. We went from not having any cases to having over ninety thousand cases today. But I think so. I, if I remember correctly, the two thousand and nine moved more quickly than that. But they share very similar dimensions otherwise. Okay,
1: and um, I, I might ask you to speculate a little bit more here. But the, you know, these things—they, I feel like in the past, at least—they've kind of run their course. You know, swine flu, we're not really talking about anymore today. Do you see... Oh, well, can I stop
2: you there? Yeah. So swine flu is actually a normal part of the influenza season now. Okay, really? Yeah. So when we test for flu um, in public health labs... 2009, that strain from the what we call now the H1N1 pandemic strain, that's very normal in in the flu population, so to speak.
1: So now people get it routinely. And 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 we have ways to. And by we, I mean the health the health community has ways of dealing with that. Well, what we've learned about that flu
2: is it isn't very different in almost any respect from any other of the H1N1 or H3N2 strains that we've seen. It's just a normal part of the, let's call it flu flora uh, nowadays. And we just don't talk about it
1: anymore. Okay. Do you see a um, cure? First of all, when it comes to viral
2: diseases, we really don't have many cures at all. For hepatitis C virus, we have some really good treatments in the medical community. Um we really don't have good drugs for any other to to treat to cure viral infections. We manage viral infections with pharmacology. HIV is an excellent example of that. The prospects for treating HIV are awesome now. Um, but we don't cure HIV with drugs. For flu, we if you catch it quick enough, we do have some drugs that can ablate and lower the, what we call the replication of the flu. But we don't really cure it per se. So to answer your question, I'm not expecting a cure from a pharmacological perspective for this virus either. Will we have treatments? I think it's inevitable that companies will look into that, but we would have to not be in the short term looking to that as a solution to the problem. That would be years away.
1: All right. I think that's it. Do you have anything else you want to tell me about, about coronavirus before we...
2: No, I I don't. I just wanted to say that that I appreciate being able to talk to you and to an organization like yourself about this, like yours about this, because... What happens in public health is, we're trying to deal with this situation, and one of the things that harms our ability to do that is misinformation, because when people in the public have correct information, it makes dealing with this so much easier, because ultimately, we need the public's agency in this in order to solve this. And in that regard, it's this is spread very much like other respiratory viruses, so if you're out there and you have symptoms, sneeze or cough into your elbow or cover your cough. It sounds hokey or like the same thing you've heard over and over again, but you're the ones that have to play a role in stopping this. And if you're sick, no matter what you have, just don't go to work and don't go out into public and try to ride the bus or anything like that. Just stay home. And that, believe it or not, is the best thing that people can do to help all of us can work together to get rid of this thing. Cool. All right. Thank all right. you so much. Thank for- you. Yeah.
1: So that was Dr. Mark Pandori, the director of the Nevada State Public Health Laboratory.
0: Since the time you two have talked, we've seen two more cases spring up in the state, as we mentioned earlier.
1: On Sunday, the Washoe County Health District told the public to reconsider travel plans to affected areas to limit the possibility of bringing the virus back home.
0: On top of this, several conventions and gatherings have already been canceled in Las Vegas, but plenty of other public events are still moving ahead as scheduled. That includes the NFL draft planned for next month. That's an event that drew a record 600,000 attendees during last year's draft in Nashville.
1: So to break down some of the public health and economic implications, you spoke with our own Megan Mesterly.
0: she's not moonlighting as our 2020 reporter, Megan Messerly covers healthcare for the Nevada Independent. Megan, thanks for joining me.
3: Happy to be here.
0: Okay, so last week we got our first presumptive positive case of the novel coronavirus. But before we dig into the public health and the political implications of all this, I want to start with a timeline. As recently as Wednesday, state officials said there were no positive tests and they had more than 200 people under supervision. When did that change?
3: Right, so we, uh, we at the Nevada Independent got some confirmation on Thursday morning and reported the first case of COVID-19 uh, here in Clark County. Um, the details, which more details emerged throughout the day on Thursday. Southern Nevada Health District officials confirmed the case in the morning and held a press conference where they revealed additional details about the patient. What we know is that he's a 50-year-old man. Uh, the Southern Nevada uh, VA health system has confirmed that he is a veteran inpatient at the hospital here in North Las Vegas. That's how he was tested. We know that he recently traveled to Washington State and Texas. Uh, Washington State, as most people probably know, is sort of a hotbed for some of these cases. They've had the most reported uh, in the United States, a lot of that tied to a nursing home there where a lot of the residents, um, many residents have contracted the disease. It's not known whether he interacted with the nursing home or whether he uh, had any interactions with patients who tested positive for COVID-19 in Washington or in Texas. Texas also has also had some reported cases as well. So Southern Nevada Health District officials were saying on Thursday, this does not appear to be a case so far. There's no evidence, at least, that this is a case of community spread. And what that means is that this is circulating widely in the community, right? And folks are spreading it from person to person. Uh, It seems like right now they're trying to investigate to see if he could have picked it up in another state and then brought it back. They're also in the process right now of investigating any contacts he had, um, For instance, they said that he did fly back from Washington State. They have not said specifically that he was at McCarran Airport, but they said they are tracing his contacts and his movements. They did add, though, that he was not symptomatic, apparently, while he was on the plane, so they're not too concerned about him being in transit. But it sounds like they're trying to figure out right now who he might have interacted with while he was here.
0: All right, so that's the first case, and now we know that there's actually a second case up in Reno. Can you talk about that a little bit?
3: Right, so on Thursday night, we got confirmation. Actually, the Reno Gazette Journal first reported this, and then the Washoe County Health District confirmed this on Thursday night. We should say we're, ta- we're having this conversation on Friday morning. The Washoe County Health District is about to hold a press conference where we're expecting to get more details about this second case. But what we know right now is this is also another male resident in his 50s. Uh, he is linked, the Washoe County Health District has said, to the Grand Princess cruise ship outbreak that we've seen be responsible for other cases they've not said specifically you know if he was on the ship when he was on the ship how he exactly he's linked to that. They've only said that he's linked to that outbreak. Uh, however, in contrast to the Southern Nevada patient, who we understand is being treated uh, for respiratory distress at the hospital, this patient in Washoe County is, uh, has, is in stable condition and is self-isolating at home. However, Washoe County Health District officials have said that the patient does have a family member who's a student at Huffacre Elementary School, and so out of an abundance of caution, they close the elementary school on Friday um, and let parents know about that closure. So we're still waiting to hear a little bit more details about that from health district officials as we're recording this on Friday, but hopefully we should know a little bit more soon.
0: Okay, so now that we've got, and again, as of today, Friday, two cases, what have state officials moved to do beyond just sort of expanding the testing process?
3: Right, so I think that the testing obviously is important, the thing that everyone's sort of keeping an eye on. Do we have enough tests? How are the tests Working, But the big thing that, um, that health district officials and the state are doing right now is this sort of analysis of how these folks contracted the disease, right? A lot of um, this is what's known as contact tracing, right? And so for these cases, they're trying to figure out who did they have contact with, one, to identify how they may have contracted the disease, and then to see who they've interacted with since then to try and find those folks and encourage them to self-quarantine depending on the level they've contacted of contact that they had with the individual. We've seen this happen um, in other states as well. And this can range from, uh, for instance, you know, if you were at a big event with the person but did not have direct contact, you may just be asked to self-monitor your symptoms. If you did have direct contact, those folks may be asked to self-quarantine at home for 14 days, uh, which is the, the general incubation period for the virus. So they want to make sure that folks are sort of in the clear before they go back and are engaging with the public. So that's a lot of what's happening right now. And then on top of that, just the sort of public public awareness uh, campaign, public health campaign, obviously reminding people to you know, wash their hands and cough into your elbow or your shoulder um, you know, and clean uh, frequently touched surfaces at home. A lot of this is about prevention still and, and, and mitigating the spread of this disease uh, from person to person. And as health officials note, these are good practices just for flu season in general, but they will also help um, spread of, of the virus.
0: And now I want to ask quickly, too, about the cost of testing. This became an issue very early on when some people were being charged thousands of dollars simply to to test themselves to see if they had the virus. Is the state doing anything about that?
3: Right. So on Thursday, um, Governor Steve Sisolak issued an emergency regulation to deal with some of the costs of testing. What it says is that health insurers will not be allowed to impose any out of pocket costs for any provider, uh, office visit, urgent care visit or emergency room visit when the purpose of that visit is testing for COVID-19. So this does get to that concern about folks not wanting to go in for testing or being concerned about going in for testing because they don't know how much it's going to cost them. The emergency regulation also bars insurers from charging Nevadans for the test itself or if any immunizations are eventually developed. We're not at that point yet. Folks are trying to develop a vaccine, but it's likely that that's still many, many months out. But at the point that that happens, this regulation would bar insurers from charging people for that immunization, uh, and it would also require coverage for prescription drugs if such drugs become available for treatment. Um, and lastly, the regulation also requires insurers to provide information to their um, the patients that they're insuring about the benefits and options for treatment, including telehealth, which is a big part of this, right? Especially for folks who don't have severe symptoms, might want to consult with a doctor, uh, but don't want to risk bringing that you know, disease into the office and p- potentially exposing other patients or healthcare. Care workers, um, he's you know this this regulation is is having insurers provide those inf- th- those details to patients. Um, one thing I will add is this only applies to health insurance plans that the state regulates. I won't get into all the wonky complicated details, but essentially some health plans are state regulated, some are federally regulated, so this only goes so far as to the plans that the state covers.
0: Okay, so I want to ask about the economic implications of all this because I think that's on a lot of people's minds. There have already been a handful of canceled conventions with more cancellations expected to come soon. For a city like Las Vegas that relies on a steady stream of large gatherings, like a concert, a convention, or sports events. Are there any indications of what the spread of COVID-19 could mean for that?
3: Right. I think that's one of the the things that we're all already seeing, even on the national level, right, is conversations about, you know, the, the airline industry and the cruise ship industry and just the travel industry in general. Obviously, there are concerns when you have anything like this come up. Is that going to impact people's desire, you know, to come to a major tourist destination like Las Vegas, so far, the indications that we're getting from the casinos is that all is okay. Many of them have released statements, you know, letting people know uh, the precautionary measures they're taking, the resources they have available, and then again, sort of just reminding people of those, those basic uh, sort of hygiene standards, wash your hands, um, you know, cover your mouth, those kinds of things. So obviously, I think folks are, are concerned about that and watchful toward that. I talked to uh, Clark County Commission Chair Marilyn Kirkpatrick last week, and, you know, we discussed this but you know she mentioned this this happens sometimes right and and Las Vegas knows that um our our tourism market, right, is depending on people wanting to come here, but that they have plans in place for that, right? And we were talking a lot specifically about the emergency preparedness measures that Las Vegas takes because they, we know as a major tourist destination, we have to have plans in place and we have to have protocols. Um, and these have been developed, you know, over the last many years. So uh, her message was, we're prepared for this. We have a plan. In fact, some other cities that maybe haven't had the foresight to to think about how a major, uh, you know, you know, outbreak of a disease or um, a natural disaster or an incident of terrorism might affect them might actually be in a worse place than Las Vegas, which really has taken the time to think through a lot of these things.
0: Okay, and I want to end by talking about the workers that are going to be on the front lines of all this. So everyone from casino workers to healthcare workers have a higher risk of exposure and don't have the luxury of working from home. Have the unions representing these workers said anything?
3: Right. So the parent union of the Culinary Union, which represents the hotel workers here in Las Vegas and in Reno statewide, they have put out a, a memo or a notice on COVID-19, saying you know that they will have protocols uh, in place for employees. It did not go into a ton of detail about exactly what that looks like. The Culinary Union itself put out a tweet yesterday, uh, just sort of to their uh, to their union membership, letting them know about you know what they should be doing to prepare and prevent for COVID-19. Um, so they have been providing information that way, but not a ton of specifics about exactly what that looks like. But I think a lot of folks are thinking about, okay, what does this mean for, uh, for shift workers who don't have an option to work from home? They have to be there in person to do their jobs. Uh, this was something i actually was talking about with SEIU local 1107 here. So they represent the nurses. They're actually, um, in the process of meeting with hospital officials and um, they've been they've asked for emergency preparedness plans from each hospital to know exactly what the protocols in place will be should the hospitals you know end up treating patients with covid19 but the one thing that i think is really important to note i was talking to union officials last week and they were telling me okay you know obviously we have concerns about uh, you know, just having the workforce to be able to treat these patients. If if nurses are working long hours to try to provide the care they need, we want to make sure that they're working a safe number of hours so they're not overworked. But the interesting thing that they mentioned is they do have good um, paid sick leave and paid time off policies that would allow them to be able to take that time off to self-quarantine at home. And not everyone is going to have that ability to take that time off and have that time off covered should they need uh, to take that step. And so I think that's one of the really interesting things we're seeing come up as part of this union conversation is this broader conversation about paid sick leave, right? And those who are union members will have that ability to have their their time off covered should they need it. But a lot of folks out there won't.
0: Okay. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. And I think it's, we've said it a bunch, but it's crucial to note it's Friday. So things could change between now and when this goes live on Monday. So Megan Messerly, you cover healthcare for the Nevada Independent. Thank you so much.
3: Yeah. Thanks for having me.